Have you noticed the sorts of things that we choose to hang up on our walls and the kinds of things that we put high on the outsides of our homes and buildings so that everyone can see them? We put up big signs advertising the catchy name of our new restaurant or we add banners pointed toward the street to tell everyone about the new deal they can get on a cell phone. At home, we find our nicest family photos. And in this 21st century, we might even employ our photographer to transpose a happier face from one frame onto another print, creating a supernaturally perfect presentation of our family's happiness and harmony. Even if we're not using digital photography to make our walls brighter than naturally possible, we put up our best pieces of art, our most tranquil prints. In the coming weeks, we'll put up greens on our doors and even here in this very space to adorn and make beautiful the cozy spaces in which we dwell. Humans crave beauty. And we respond, even subconsciously, to the things we look at every single day. Just like eating bacon and biscuits every morning can start to have an effect on your body, the things that we look at and think about every day start to have an effect on our minds and our souls, too. It's no mistake that the American flag flies high above Home Depot, that we are reminded often when we let our eyes wander skyward that we're walking through the United States, whether on a neighborhood sidewalk or in a corporate parking lot or the steps of the Capitol building. So this reflection led me to consider what we raise high in our church? What are the symbols that rule our gaze when we come to God's holy house? Considering our love of beauty, our desire for it, and our love of things that inspire us, it's strange, really, that we lift high the cross and indeed, in this particular worship space, not just those two perpendicular logs that make up a cross, but a dead body affixed to it. Imagine you're coming into this space for the first time, perhaps even unfamiliar with what Christian worship is about and Christian worship spaces at all. You come down the center aisle and... There's a dead and bloody man, large as life, as the centerpiece of our artwork program. If you've ever been to the Biblical Museum, the Museum of Biblical Art up by North Park Mall, and you can get in free on December 8th at 1.30 p.m. when our choir performs there, you can see plenty more depictions of this same vision. This brown man whose body is beaten, immortalized on his torture device. Why do Christians 
do this? Why is this the most common symbol of our faith? How could this be the best foot that we have to put forward for converts and evangelism? Far from promising your best life now, this sculpture, this witness to the death of Jesus Christ seems to serve as a deterrent, a warning sign. If you stick around here, this may just happen to you. One of my best priest friends has business cards that have a quotation on them in addition to his contact info, and it says, God has a plan for your life. And on the back, just like Father Jordan and I have pictures of the um, the stained glass windows around here, he has images of old classic pieces of artwork, but they're all scenes of martyrdom. God has a plan for your life, they proclaim. Watch out. But it's not even a joke. Looking out over you all this morning, knowing some of the stories of your lives, as I do, and knowing that there are plenty more stories that I have not yet been told. You know that this Christian life is not a punchline, that the cross is not some gilded symbol of earthly victory, because often there is no victory this side of the grave. That's part of the deterrent, part of the warning. There may not be a glorious parting of the clouds in our lives. There may not be a tearful, smiling reunion and restoration of relationship. It's very possible that we will spend our entire lives clinging to candles of light living in the midst of darkness. It doesn't sound like a very desirable existence when put that way, but we are the ones who show up and face a dead body hanging on a tree week in and week out. It's a little bit insane when taken on balance with the things that we see and hear around us the rest of the week. It's a little bit insane to keep staring into the darkness, to keep admitting the evil that creeps around the corners of our lives. When those around us cover their ears and their eyes to the darkness that threatens everyone. And it is in ignoring and denying that evil that tempts us, that darkness find its, finds its greatest power. The greatest power of darkness is to deny that it exists at all. Our culture pretends that in ourselves we have power over evil, that we are strong to crush cancer under our feet that enough rehab facilities will banish addictions from our bodies, 
that our marriages and our family relationships can be made effortless and without any cracks if we just try hard enough. Many of you know from your intimate experiences with all of these evils that what our culture tells us day in and day out about the hope that we can make for ourselves through government programs or through emotional toughness or through enough money or enough security or enough therapy is a lie. We have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. This is the bad news. But this is also the good news. Desperation, fear, hopelessness, they spring from trying to be our own saviors, from pinning our hope on the next chemotherapy drug, from considering midterm elections to be our salvation, from imagining that our deliverance can come if we just had a larger paycheck or just a better education system, or just a better system for using our time. None of these things can save us. None of these things can contribute to our peace. The good news then, brothers and sisters, is that we can give up on them. It's not easy, but we can let go of these false roads to salvation and peace. The culture may tell us that our peace, our harmony, our future lie in voter turnout or keeping our therapy appointments or saving others from their own demons. But humans have never been meant to save ourselves. The good news is that we are free to stop trying to save ourselves. That's why we gather here every week in defiance of a culture that tells us that we can sufficiently better ourselves to make the world a place of light. That's why we come here and stand and stare at this broken bloodied body lifted up from the earth, this body which draws all nations to himself. Because this is our salvation. This is our hope. This is the light in the darkness. Not that darkness doesn't exist, but that the darkness cannot overcome this light. So we gather and we pray. We lift up to God the bodies of our friends who are riddled with cancer. We lay before God's altar the minds and hearts of our family members who suffer addiction and suicidal thoughts and disorders of mental health. We surrender to God the broken and bloodied relationships of our lives.
and we surrender to God the hope and potential of our children to his care. We leave at his feet the worries about our culture and our government. We present to God's throne every worry that prickles our minds and our hearts, every creeping thought of darkness that threatens our peace. That's our prayer on Sundays and every time that we kneel in the quietness of our hearts to seek God's presence. We have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. We cannot strong-arm ourselves into favor or into mercy or into greatness. We are small and we are finite, as God tells Job in the Old Testament lesson this morning. And we are bombarded by the lies of the enemy to which the disciples James and John succumb in this morning's gospel. Our recourse Our power, our hope, is in the big, almighty, forever mercy of God. The God who in Jesus Christ, this nonsensical talisman of our faith, knows all our weakness and our worry and our darkness. As the epistle to the Hebrews says this morning, this high priest knows our struggle intimately. And what does scripture say to us this morning that he did? He prayed. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. This is the depiction of one who is saved from death. This is the vision of hope for Christians. This is our deliverance the deliverance of our God. Our God promises to preserve the works of his mercy, that his church throughout the world may persevere in steadfast faith in the confession, the sharing, the saying out loud of God's name. Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, work mightily in us this morning and in the week to come. Reign your mercy upon us. Show us the way of freedom from darkness. Give us strong candles of light that we may be the beacons that you call us to be in our daily lives. Let your light so shine in and through us that we may lead our loved ones and neighbors to hope and faith in 
you. In the midst of a culture of denial and of desperation for salvation and hope in all kinds of halfway true and false places, give us courage to speak the full truth of your name. Give us grace to love well. Give us your peace to serve with humility and with perseverance. God, we ask all this calling upon the glorious name and example of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.